They're coming to get you, Barbara. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. The unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This week on a podcast from beneath, The Omen. Mr. Poe, how's it going? I'm kind of scared now. I've watched The Omen and I kind of see things happening. No, I'm doing good, man. I'm doing <laughs> Eric, how are you doing? I was doing well until Mr. Poe showed me the photographs <laughs> of me that he took earlier with the strange discoloration moving closer and closer to my neck. <laughs> William, how you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, I'm still recovering from watching uh, four Omen movie, five Omen movies, including the remake. I didn't. Oh, man, I didn't watch the the series, so I I I thought that was going too far. And uh, you <laughs> failed at your task, sir. You did not complete. I, I, I did your homework it. for this. I, show. I did read half the book, so I. Uh, oh, uh, <laughs> did more than I did. That was something I was wondering if if this was a. Uh, if this was based off of a book, it was well, actually, based off of several books. Well, okay, there you go. Well, well actually, well, actually, it's the reverse. Uh, David Selsa yeah. did a novelization of the screenplay, and he managed to get it released before the book, the movie was released. And everybody assumed that the movie was based on the book. The book mm -hmm. was an enormous bestseller; it's one of the best-selling novel horror novels of all time, and it's actually better than the screenplay because he was able to patch up a lot of the mistakes that he made in the logic and the, the storytelling. I thought it was interesting because I watched, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I watched the documentary and actually I watched two different ones and one of them was the better one. <laughs> but anyway, I like how he, he came up with the idea. That was just so cool. Like he was just, you know, it just kind of hit him, the idea. Well, he also had a little bit of impetus because the producer, he owed money to, apparently. This is the story. <laughs> and the producer- It's a movie! There's a story he thought, he's, he's done so many interviews over the years that it's hard to get the exact story. I, he's not that's a what I person, found, yeah. But he told one version of the story where the producer came to him and said, I want something like The Exorcist, because The Exorcist was making so much money. Mm -hmm. So he said, I don't want to do that. I don't believe in any of that shit. And then I guess the producer reminded him that he owed him money. So, but it was a good thing for him because he had, I mean, he probably is still living off the money he made just from the book alone. Uh, and they, they keep making Omen movies and TV shows. Presumably he gets a piece of the action every time they do that. On the remake, he actually got sole credit because the script was so similar to his script that the WGA decided that he should get sole credit. Um, wow. So I assume a paycheck came along with that. Yeah, uh -huh. it's, it's really interesting because, you know, I mean, the, the whole history of these novelizations is, it's very, very fascinating because as I'm sure we'll get into, there was the first Omen and then there were two subsequent Omen films that were made by 20th Century Fox, both of which were novelized. And then the series went dark at least theatrically after the third one, but there were two more novelizations that were produced that were based upon what the original plan for the film series was going to be. And 
it's really, really weird the way, and, and you know, and I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at the, I've got a, a first edition copy of the original Omen novelization. And you're right in that it came out first. I think that Seltzer wrote the screenplay. The screenplay was shot and then he did what was very, very popular of the era. We saw this with Star Wars as well, where the author of the screenplay either writes or ghost writes, has somebody else write for them, a novelization that is pushed out into the stores a couple months ahead right. of the film. That was how they, that's how they promoted a lot of films back in that time. So the Omen and Star Wars being a year away from one another, that makes sense. Now, the reason I bring all that up is the fact that there's a note here at the beginning of the book that is explaining that there are certain discrepancies between the book and the film down to character names. For some very, very strange reason, characters have different names in the book than in the film. But presumably, the book is based upon the film that is based upon the screenplay, and yet you have the book having different names. Well, he said that he changed the name of uh, the Gregory Peck character. Uh, apparently, Peck didn't like the name, or the director didn't like the name. They had some other name for whatever reason. Had, there was an association to a particular name that they preferred. Jeremy uh, Thorne was the, right. yeah. yeah. And he, when he did the novelization, he went back to the name that he preferred, which just seems like a kind of a pissy thing to do. It's like, you know, <laughs> well, Yeah, but, but it, was, it also goes to Patrick Troughton's character, the, the, the evil priest. He has a different name. Um, the Jennings character that David Warner plays also has a different name. It's littered all throughout. And yes. then starting with the second book, based on Damien Omen 2, the names conform, well, the names that? that are referenced conform to the film, rather who wrote, than... Who, who wrote that, uh, the other books? Uh, oh, I assume the, he wasn't involved. The other, yeah, you're correct. This, the novelizations for, let's see, the novelization for part two was written by Joseph Howard. Mm -hmm. Then the third film uh, was novelized by Gordon McGill, who also wrote the books then for Omen 4, Armageddon 2000, and Omen 5, The Abomination. The Abomination should have been the name for the whole series, in my <laughs> opinion. But I think what they were trying to do is get a, like a Star Trek uh, publishing set up there. They had a franchise. Presumably, they made a shitload of money with the first book, and they wanted to have an ongoing franchise that would actually survive the series of films. I mean, sometimes they make films simply to keep the publishing franchise alive. They did that with Alien, apparently. It was the toys and the comic books that made them say, let's do another Alien a movie, uh, back when they were doing the one where Sigourney Weaver comes back as a superhero. Uh, I forget which one that was, the third one? Or the f no, the third one fourth was... One. Fourth one, right. Um, but the story that David Seltzer has told, he was attending the dailies and he saw the scene of David Warner's head being cut off and flying around. And when he <laughs> saw that, he said to himself, I got to go write a novelization of this because this is going to be big. And he had the uh, idea in mind because uh, Eric Siegel had just had a big hit with, and oh, it was, uh, not Eric Siegel, I forget his name. It's Jonathan Livingston Siegel was that movie about the se a seagull. And, and it was written by uh, a guy who previously had written, I think the uh, screenplay for the Yellow Submarine. Uh, anyway, that was a sort of minor sensation as a book. 
it was apparently the first time they actually novelized uh, a screenplay. Before that, this was like 1971, I guess. Before that, they would uh, publish the screenplay. They would modify the screenplay. I had a copy of the screenplay for Westworld, which was published as a paperback novel, just like The Omen. But inside, it was just Michael Crichton's screenplay. It wasn't turned into a novelization. Well, when they did the novelization for Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and it was a big bestseller, I guess that's where David Selsa said, I got to do the same thing. So he rushed home and started writing. And I guess the reason why he made changes is because he wanted it to be a, a, a separate and distinct work. And that was probably wise because uh, when I look back on The Omen after I saw the movie, I was a big fan of this movie when it came out. I guess I was like 13 or 14 years old. I was just crazy about it. And I saw it with an opening you know, weekend audience and everybody in the audience just went nuts for it. And for a while I was obsessed by the thing. And the first thing I did was run out and buy the novelization. And back then, if you wanted to own a part of a movie that you loved, the only way you could do it was to buy the soundtrack or buy the novel. Mm -hmm. I read the novel, I thought the novel was fantastic. It really influenced me. I can see that now in some of the screenplays I was writing around that time. But when Star Wars came out, I forgot all about all that shit. <laughs> Holman, Schmoman. I wasn't interested yeah. <laughs> in that. And I haven't watched the film in 30 years. Wow. And I think the reason why I always had it in my mind that this was a great horror movie was because I was remembering the book. The book is a very solid piece of work. The movie, I don't know if it really works as a horror film so much anymore. It almost seems like a comedy now. Well, didn't they, didn't they say, like, the director, and, and like you said, the, the two documentaries I watched, they kind of counteract each other in some of the things they say. But one thing he did say is he didn't consider it a horror movie. It's yeah. like more of a thriller. Thriller, right, yes. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, what do you all think? Well, Carrie, what do you think? I think it's more of a thriller than it is uh, a horror movie. Um, but I, I was, I kept just kept thinking like um, the anything biblical always seems to be turned into like a horror movie. You know, you've got the Omen, the Seventh Sign. Um, but I, but I, yeah, I don't think it's horror. I think it's more of a thriller. Well, maybe than, what he was trying horror. to say was that he approached it as a thriller. And that was probably the a wise choice because he avoided anything that was overtly supernatural. Everything could be explained uh, as a you know coincidence or an accident. Uh, and you know that Richard Donner, you come to really appreciate his work when you see the remake, or when you see the sequels. Because uh, I was prepared if they're just watching The Omen again, I was prepared to be down on the film. And then I watched the sequels <laughs> and I watched the remake and I said, oh yeah, Richard Donner really knew what he was doing because he avoided all the mistakes that the folks who made the subsequent films, uh, one of whom was actually a pretty important director, Mike Hodges, who's a British director. He's the guy that directed uh, Get Carter and uh, Croupier and I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. He's very highly regarded. Uh, He's dead now. He also did a movie version of The Terminal Man, Michael Crichton, on the Michael Crichton novel. And he's a very good director. He was fired from uh, The Omen 2 because they thought he was taking too much time. But apparently some <laughs> of his stuff is still in the movie. So they had intelligent people involved, talented people involved in the sequels. 
but they didn't seem to make the right choices as far as the type of story. They, they didn't seem to understand what made the first film work, I think. Right. Well, I'm going to go to my grave defending Damien Omen 2. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because it falls into that sort of category where I know objectively that the first Omen is the better film, but I feel like I enjoy Damien Omen 2 more than the original. And I think part of that is the fact that, I mean, let's face it, the Omen was trying so very hard to be 20th Century Fox's answer to The Exorcist. They wanted to make um, a big, devil film that would scare the hell out of people or the hell into people. And because I mean, before 1973, for the most part, horror films going back, you know, I mean, there'd been Psycho in 1960, but for the most part, horror films, you had either sort of drive-in schlock, like mm -hmm. what the Hammer films were, or you had um, exploitation cinema, like Last House on the Left, and then later on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and other films of that ilk. Horror was not a genre that was regarded as being, you know, a classy, um, you know, you, you weren't going to see opera if you went to go see a horror film. And then The Exorcist comes out and took itself so very seriously. And, you know, Friedkin said so many things along the lines of, you know, I didn't approach it. Same way we're saying about The Omen. I didn't approach this as a horror film. This was a drama that where, you know, the so much of what was happening just, you know, so happened to appear supernatural. And The Omen is very much cut from the same cloth. And so it's being the exorcist or trying to be the exorcist, you know, albeit with its own spin on it. And I love The Omen unconditionally. Omen 2, though, is sort of like, you know, it's like Exorcist 2 or even The Exorcist 3. I love when the first sequel always takes this very kind of weird turn because there's no franchise yet. There is a hit film, um, but what the, the franchise to be is going to be remembered you know, retrospectively has not yet been determined. It's not typically determined until the third film. And so these sequels where you get Exorcist 2 or you get Damien Omen 2 or Nightmare on Elm Street 2 before there was a formula and the filmmakers were just trying to do the next thing and put their own stamp on it. And then people react typically very strongly, um, you know, in opposition to that, at which point, you see sort of what worked in the first one recycled in the third one. And so Damien Omen 2 for me is the one that stands out because it is told largely from Damien's perspective. He's not inherently evil. It brings up the question of nature and nurture. It brings up all sorts of, you know, the, the idea of suspicions of destiny and coming into one's own and becoming a man and taking your first steps, your rites of passage. Damien Omen 2 is about learning to accept the family you've been born into instead of the family maybe that you wished you'd been born into. It just deals with these very, very different themes that you don't see then in the final conflict or even in Omen 4 and certainly not in the remake. I, I, I sort of feel that the, uh, 
with the Omen franchise, it's a fairly crass uh, commercial thing. Uh, one thing, I, and we talked in, uh, when we spoke about The Exorcist, we talked about the unfortunate effects of The Exorcist and how films like The Exorcist may have eventually led to the satanic panic. And uh, at least we can say about The Exorcist, it was from the heart. I mean, William Peter Blatty really felt he was sending a message to the world that was worth hearing. And he also, to his credit, didn't say that the solution to a demonic baby was to kill them. And unfortunately, with The Omen, which is a very shallow film, and it is entirely intended, even by David Seltz's own statements, it's entirely intended as a commercial venture. It's a, a Jaws plus The Exorcist. Give the audience a thrill ride, right? And yet it has what I think might have been more lasting negative effect. I'm not blaming uh, David Seltzer or Richard Donna for crazy parents that kill their children. But unfortunately, that's, uh, if you go on Google and you do a search, which I, I did, I looked as, at as many of these as I could stand, it's been a fairly consistent thing going on now, certainly since 1976. And, might have been before, but certainly since 1976, story after story of mama decides that she has to stab her child to death because she thought it was in, uh, had demons in it. A daddy decides to drown his baby child because it has demons in it. Over and over and over again. Well, where do people get these ideas? Even David Berkowitz. David Berkowitz saw The Omen and he saw The Exorcist. And when the time came to create a sort of mythology about why he's going around shooting people, he referred to the omen, right? I mean, son of Sam is a dog told me to do it. Well, mm -hmm. that's, that's the omen. I mean, where else would he get that idea? I don't think that was a popular concept. And the funny thing is, probably the only reason they worked those black dogs into the movie was because they, get, they were looking at the exorcist. They saw, well, the exorcist started with a scene with dogs. So we got to get some dogs in this picture somewhere. And it was a natural thing. Rottweilers are nasty-looking animals, you know. I'm sure they're very mm -hmm. sweet, but... Am, am I the only one who remembered Doberman Pinchers instead of Rottweilers when I first watched it as a kid? <laughs> For some reason, I remember them being Dobermans. I don't know why. Well, in the remake, they swapped out the first Rottweiler with a, what appears to be some sort of German Shepherd Husky mix, which was a very stupid move, I thought. Yeah. I mean, why would you want to have a, a cute looking dog you know well, one thing one thing i would say about the about richard Donner is he had an eye for creating these sort of sin, sinister images and that was one of the most effective scenes in the only one the nanny hangs herself and it's well i mean let's let's talk for a second about yeah the death scenes because i mean you know we when we think <laughs> largely about slasher films from that era just you know post omen starting with Halloween and going forward in 78. But when you start looking at slasher films, the thing that everybody talks about is how characters were dispatched. The kills are always, you know, what you are there for specifically, the tits being number two and the story being a dead last. You are there for these memorable setups and, and uh, you know, executions of characters. And... I feel like The Omen is really where that began more so than even, you know, the stuff that Savini was doing on Friday the 13th, you know, or, or even if we start looking at the, you know, the Italian films that, that 
influence that whole wave over here. The fact is the Omen had these incredible, incredible, you know, that whether they were, you know, Rube Goldberg machines sort of of kills or they were just these out of left field moments like the nanny hanging herself at the birthday party. Um, the, the kills were so very weird. They were very weird. It, 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 none of these things were the sort of deaths that would strike you as being conventional particularly in a film of this sort. There was, there was a, a touch of weirdness to each one of them in which the, the death felt so out of place <laughs> that in some ways that was more effective than the death itself. The idea of a priest being impaled by a church spire right out in front of you know the 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 chapel door or you know or a nanny committing suicide by hanging herself at this big gigantic um you know paparazzi swarming political birthday party for a little kid and you know and, and certainly not david warner getting his head cut off by you know a sheet of glass that just happens to you know get thrown by a vehicle you know when the e-brake releases right. itself i mean well, they're, they're just so bizarre that yeah. that's what makes them so shocking and so well, what what i like what what i liked about the death scenes and i don't know if don or done this on purpose or if it's just if it's just, this is his style but there was a long lead up to the death scene and then just like whenever the priest is stabbed he lingers on it afterwards for like mm -hmm for way too long where it starts getting like a little bit uncomfortable and i don't i don't, I don't know if that was his style or not to have well, that I, I think that, that little oh, build up up to the death yeah i think the same thing is true with the photographer's death uh it's one thing to have the head cut off but then to go back and show the head with a startled expression being reflected in the glass that really is the thing that chills people if it had just been the head being cut off, you know, it probably wouldn't have had the same impact. But Donna did have a knack, and Quentin Tarantino mm -hmm. said that he thought that this was Donna's best directed film. I think I agree with him. Uh, Donna has a way of making, of building the tension and suspense so that when the, a death occurs, it, it's extremely dramatic and powerful. Uh, that whole scene with the nanny hanging herself is a good example. And to compare it to the remake, uh, that is so botched that you really do appreciate Richard Donner and his editor, what they did with the original film, because the guy who did the, I don't know his name, he's done some other movies recently, but uh, he even has at one point, uh, you know, they have like a Punch and Judy puppet show going on for the children. Mm -hmm. So Donner focuses mostly on Lee Remick's wide eyes. Lee Remick must have had the widest eyes in show business. And when she's looking startled and hogging her baby, and that is a, an impressive image in itself. You really feel the horror of the scene just by looking at her. The remake, the guy goes and shows all sorts of reactions from different people, and he stops to show the two puppets looking up at the nanny hanging out the window. <laughs> what, what the hell does that mean? All right, so I, I'm going to pick this back up with where would this movie be without Jerry Goldsmith's score? Yes. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a terrific. Uh, it's nonsense Latin, apparently, but uh, we won't hold that against them. Uh, it's very impressive. I found myself after watching the movie, uh, going around with that in my head for the past couple of days. Uh, so it's very memorable, obviously. Um, I don't know for a modern audience, though, if, I mean, it's hard for me to say because I'm not a modern audience, uh, but I don't know if the music might be a little too much. Uh, it almost, in some scenes, creates a, uh, it, it's also hard to tell because there were so many parodies of this movie after it, you know, something yeah. like uh, that, that almost seems like a, a, a comedic music, music cue now. Uh, but it's certainly effective. It certainly was effective the first time. Uh, I don't know why he decided to go in such a different direction with the second film, uh, but I, maybe he figured I won an Oscar for this. Uh, I have to do something. Well, didn't different. didn't he get not? Didn't that soundtrack get nominated? He was. Yeah, I think it won. Uh, it won. Yeah. Whatever, oh, okay. Whatever that opening piece that with the Latin. Ave Satani. Ave yeah. Satani. Yes. There you go. Uh, that one, I don't know if it was best song. It might have been best song. I don't <laughs> know. To I was, I, yeah. somebody, somebody told me that they were watching the Oscars that night and they had a musical number for that with nuns dancing. I don't know if I can <laughs> credit that account, but I'm going to do further research on that. Yeah, we got to find that. It probably wouldn't it, be beyond the Academy to do something like that. If it isn't real. It needs to be real. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and we need to make it so. Oh, there you maybe go, Carrie. The, the Omen yeah. on Ice. How about that? <laughs> the Omen on Ice. <laughs> I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, Goldsmith does go in a, in a very Baroque, very operatic direction for this with, you know, all the, you know, Sanguis bibimus corpus edimus, you know all the all the bullshit Latin and, and chanting and stuff. And you're right in that on the one hand, it's beautiful. It sounds like a Catholic mass in hell. Um, but at the same time, I think that it can, in moments, render the drama melodrama and be unintentionally funny but still i mean still wonderful it's just it's so it's it's maybe a nudge too far over the cliff you know that's the thing with horror you push it a little too far and it starts becoming funny right. and I, I i think that i think that that's what happens a bit but the score is still amazing and i think the score for omen 2 though it did go in a very different direction um i, I think it's a better score in a lot of ways I don't care for the third film, which to me feels like a, um, you know, it, it, it sounds, it sounds like Ben-Hur. It sounds like the 10 commandments because in many cases, it, I mean, it was, it, it basically turns into um, one of those old widescreen, um, you know, very gaudy Bible movies at the very end. Um, but yeah, the first two movies, the score, the score is fantastic. Well, also and, I, they... and again, with Omen 2, I like the way the score <laughs> deviates from what won the awards, it kind of forges its own path. Well, I suppose he, he should be given some credit just for trying something different. I, I think the, the real problem with uh, the second film is that they didn't, in my opinion, they didn't uh, realize that the effectiveness of the first film was due to the fact that the creature of evil was kept at a distance. Uh, 
we experience everything through Gregory Peck or through Lee Remick or through David Warner, and we don't know what to make of the child. Whereas in the second film, we get to know the kid too much. And to be honest with you, uh, some of the stuff like him going out and standing on the uh, lake edge and screaming, why me? You know, that, you know, that might work in a Star Trek movie, you know, but uh, in a movie that we're supposed to be taking seriously, at least in the moment, it's ridiculously melodramatic. And we don't know how we, how we're supposed to feel about this. The first film, it's like an arrow, you know, it moves exactly straight forward towards its target. And it, there isn't a spare moment wasted on any sort of silliness. It knows exactly what it wants to do. In the second film, it's like we get a little of this, we get a little of that. We got Lance Henriksen as a, a, a military academy uh, teacher or commander or whatever they call him. And we got um, uh, Robert Foxworth. Robert Foxworth with his f furry hair hat. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell that guy. I don't know if he's still with us. I hope so because yeah, I'm sure he's a nice man, but. I can tell you why he never became a big star in movies, because that is a ridiculous looking, I don't know if it's a wig or if it's his actual hair. But. <laughs> and let's face it, he was also kind of the poor man's Robert Reed in that hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever possessed Robert Reed to go to that haircut, I don't know. But, but maybe that was think, the thing then. Now, well, do, you think in, do you think in part two that, I mean, you kind of like, you're like sympathizing with the Antichrist. You think that's the way yes. it's supposed to have been? Or, I mean, it well, was, but that's part of the problem with it because I agree with you. It's, it, it's like I said from the beginning, I will die defending that movie. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, it won't come it. to that. <laughs> hey, look, the way my year is going, it would not strike me as outside the realm. That so we're going to have to check this video afterwards to see if there's any <laughs> lines drawn on the picture. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, no, I'm, I'm going to tell you, my son is going to be telling his son someday about how his grandpa died um, <laughs> and was literally defending Omen 2 as he did. But nonetheless, Omen 2 is like, you know, again, it's like Elm Street 2. It's like Exorcist 2. It's weird. It's different. It's not better. It's definitely not better. But in some ways, it's more interesting to talk about uh, because what is so great about those original films is so obvious, we know what's so great about it. Part of what makes these weird part twos so good is that even if they strike out, even if they don't hit the mark, they, they did their own thing. Even if it failed, it was attempting to be of the same visual and narrative language as its predecessor while still doing something different. And not simply recycling the first one again. And I think that Omen 2, yeah, the minute that you are forced to sympathize with the Antichrist, it, it can't be scary at that right, point. Yeah. It cannot be frightening. You have just hobbled your entire concept. But if we are now watching it as a sort of gothic melodrama, as we're saying, if we're watching it as a gothic melodrama, that is going to have, once again, some incredible death scenes, some really, really vicious death scenes, a couple of which I think are actually better than any of the death scenes in the original. And I'm speaking specifically of Joan Hart getting attacked by the bird and then <laughs> run over by the tractor trailer. That is fucking amazing. As well as uh, 
Hollywood from Mannequin getting cut in half by a cable car. Yeah. Also amazing. <laughs> but at any rate, at any rate, the point is, it, it's it's not scary, but it's very, very interesting. And sometimes interesting is is just as good to talk about. Well, what I always wonder about is why is it, and I agree with you, the, often movies that are bad are, uh, or, or failures uh, are more interesting to talk about because we can consider what would we have done. And I am always surprised that what's so obvious to me, what seems like a lead pipe cinch, that they should not have done it that way. And I say to myself, well, how would I do it? I say, oh, I, I know they've given us the answer. He has a stepbrother. So the story is about the stepbrother slowly learning that the brother that he cares about so much may be the Antichrist. And he's seeing all these people around him dying, but it's kept at a distance, right? gradually pieces it together. And then he's confronted with the question, do I do something about this? I love my brother. He's the most important. We're like, we're inseparable, but he's the Antichrist. And that puts him in the same position that Gregory Peck was in in the first film. What they wanted to do instead was they wanted to find another old Hollywood movie star to step in and, you know, they got William Holden, who actually turned down... Turned down the first one, right. Here he is doing the... And there's nothing dramatic about his situation. The whole movie is him sort of ignoring everything until towards the end when suddenly he decides, no, it's not a coincidence. I got to kill my kid. And then one of the more ridiculous things, he says, let me take my wife along because she'll want to be there when I do it, right? It doesn't occur to him that that's something that you should really do on your own. If you decide your child is the devil baby, that you shouldn't bring your wife along, right? <laughs> Uh, and of course, it's such a mechanical thing. They wanted to have Lee Grant in that scene because she supplies the ending of the movie when she turns on him and stabs him, right? Which, I mean, come on, that that was a fantastic well, was jump a, the first time. It was, a, it was a surprise, but the thing of it is, when you look back on it, you see how mechanical it is. And also the uh, precision that we had in Richard Donner's movie, it's missing here. The director doesn't have the sense of drama that Richard Donner has, or the sense of drama that Steven Spielberg, who was Donner's, I assume, he was going for a Spielberg uh, uh, style. Uh, the last scene with, after, uh, first of all, they have the, the furnace blowing up, which is silly, and then they have the kid coming down the steps of the museum, right? And when I'm watching this, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to see the fire engines pull up right in front and the firemen are going to be rushing up the stairs and they're going to be attaching fire hoses and the kid is going to be slowly walking down and getting in his car and that'll be the end of the movie. Instead, it looks like the fire engines are going someplace else. They couldn't afford the fucking fire engines. They got the lights and the sirens, but they never pull up in front of the place that's supposedly burning. That's a mess. That's, that's not getting the dra dramatic beats right. The same thing with when the old lady dies. The way that scene should have been was she wakes up in bed, she sees the crow, the crow gives her the stink eye, cut. Then the next morning, the wife goes into a room and finds it dead on the floor. And maybe if you wanted to put a little extra twist on it, you could have the crow peck their eyes out, right? Just to give it a little gore. But the dramatic beat is she looks up, she sees it, cut. You don't hang around and watch her ogling the, the, the raven. Uh, I guess they were crows, right? I don't think they were using raven. I know there's a well, distinction between them. But what, do you, what did y'all think about, and I find it interesting. I love the behind the scenes stuff. And what do you think about the, uh, 
like the curse part of it. I mean, a lot of it is kind of weird, yeah, especially. They were um, just trying to generate the same thing with the exorcist. I yeah, and uh, I was thinking that too, but a lot of that stuff is pretty weird, man. And I don't know if everybody was in on it just to get the hype up. I mean, what do you what do you think? Okay, what do you I, guys think? I'm going to say two things. The first is this, just circling back for one second. You were talking about the ending of Omen 2 and the fact that uh, William Holden takes off to go get the daggers of Megiddo um, with which he's going to kill Damien and Lee Grant goes chasing after him. And, and that's how I always took it. I never took it that he was luring his wife to go oh. see him kill the kid. The, the point is that she was a guardian that, you know, she was the most insidious of the guardians because she'd been placed right next to the kid hiding in plain sight. She was the whore of Babylon. So I really enjoyed the fact that she's chasing after him and we're just taking that as yeah, she's chasing after him because her husband's freaking out. He didn't make any effort to hide his plans from her, which is mystifying to me. And the only reason he, that, that that would be the way they would set it up in the script is because they want her to come along. Uh, Gregory Peck's character didn't have that choice to make because his wife was dead already, but he didn't include anybody else in the, in, the, in the killing of the child because a logical person would assume if somebody's coming along with me, then that means they're probably gonna try to stop me because what I'm doing is not going to be explainable in any sort of rational way. Uh, I, all I'm saying is that I suppose there is a way that that could have been done so that it would have made more sense to me at least but the director staged it in a way where it seems kind of clunky and obvious that they were just going for a certain ending and they were bending i mean logic and reason are you know not something we should expect to find in any of the omen movies including the first one there's all sorts of absurdities like uh, mrs belloc just sort of traipsing in and saying i'm your new nanny like mary Poppins. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I was gonna say when I when I was rewatching today, I was like the the thorns they're either they're either just they're either naive or really dumb. <laughs> and you know something, one of the my favorite things about Mrs. Baylock that was not in the film, but was in the book. So I don't know if it was in the screenplay or not, but the reason that the housekeeper and his wife quit the Thorn employ is because Mrs. Bla Mrs. Baylock, I think it's actually Mrs. Blaylock in the book, but Mrs. Baylock is um, going out and shitting in the woods behind the house. <laughs> like they've, okay. they've, they've caught her out there shitting in the woods like an animal and covering her own waist and that she's doing other things like that on the premises that are oh. the way an animal would act rather than a person. Well, we and hope that she's just shitting in the woods. I mean, maybe there's something else she's using the shit for. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe she's a creature that doesn't have the shit. I mean, the whole reason they make that assumption is because they're keeping track of her toilet paper. What about when the, the first, I guess, nanny or housekeeper, what do you want to, whatever you want to call her, whenever that scene, when she looks at the dog, and then, of course, they focus in on the eyes and stuff. Like, it's communicating to her. Yeah. And then she offs herself. And I was thinking, okay, it, was that like, hey, you've done your part? Yeah, you know, that, when he was a baby to I now think, he's five? Or, hypnotism, what, I, mean, I think. I, I, I took it that the dog was sending a signal and yes. saying, 
now you're going to go kill yourself. Right. But that's the problem. Uh, you're, you're actually uh, pointing to the sort of absurdities uh, that, that are a problem with the script. They're not really a problem because the director moves quickly through these things and he has, he approaches it with such a dramatic, uh, in a, such a dramatic way that you don't, it's sort of like James Bond films. They do yeah. stuff that they know is going to get a reaction from the audience and they don't care if you go back later and say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Uh, it doesn't make a lick of sense that if this is some sort of organized thing to put the Antichrist in a position of power, that all the people that are trying to help the Antichrist are going out of their way to behave as insanely as possible. It doesn't make any sense that Mrs. Belloc would constantly defy uh, Lee Remick and Gregory Peck. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense that she would bring the dog into the house to make that an issue because any reasonable person in any other situation would say, Mrs. Belloc, um, pack a bag and get to your ass out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're fucking fired. Take your dog <laughs> and leave. You like the dog so much, she's yours. Out the door with you. Yeah. Uh, and she goes out of her way to confront the people that she should be as nice and polite to as possible because she wants to, she's the person that's protecting the child. So that doesn't make any sense, but it's a dramatic moment when she defies Lee Remick, when Lee Remick says, bring my child out, and they have that tense moment where she's saying, I don't think you should take the kid to church. It sets up the church scene, right? The church yeah. scene wouldn't work as well if you didn't have Miss Bellick saying, I don't think you should do this, right? So that's a setup, even though it doesn't make sense for the character to be doing that. Yeah. Also, the nanny, uh, you could say, well, they got that nanny out of the way so that Mrs. Belloc could come in and replace her, which I suppose makes sense. But why tell the nanny to do her suicide in such a spectacular way? That only makes it more likely that they'll be more security conscious when the next nanny comes in, which they are. Which they weren't. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, right? It's okay, like, so here's the keys to the house. <laughs> So here's our social security number and here's our credit cards you take over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right here was my this this has always been my interpretation of it and this is not informed by any any text in the film or in the novel so this is just my interpretation i thought about that as well i was like would not the deaths be more subtle and mm -hmm. this doesn't necessarily you know remove that question from the conversation but I will say that I always took it that the nanny committed suicide specifically to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Desecrate the family home. Right. That, that through the act of suicide, Mrs. Blaylock could enter the home and do yeah. the shit that she was going to do. Um, again, that doesn't, you know. Well, I took it that it, way. It, when I first saw the film, I thought that this was some way of celebrating the, 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 the it's a sacrifice it's some right. sort of ritual sacrifice but it goes again I mean according to the book they only have one chance every thousand years to get this right so to be engaging in these celebratory things uh, mm -hmm. or these ritual things that simply draw attention to what they're doing when they could just be quiet and go about their business and not be killing every fucking person that comes along that gives that, you know, look sideways at them that is actually detrimental to their plans because nobody would ever, no reasonable person would ever say there's the Antichrist unless they notice all the bodies around them. Right? Then they say, well, maybe he is the Antichrist. Well, that's because evil is gaudy. And that actually, that goes back to the earlier question. 
that we that because of me and I apologize we went on a tangent <laughs> but the question of did all of the behind the scenes supernatural um, stuff happen and it, I, I think that I'll just echo um, Mr. Hopkins earlier statement which is it's bullshit it it's PR it sells a movie it sells you know a magazine with a story about the movie um, it, it, it was clearly modeled after The Exorcist. And right down to, there, there's a wonderful documentary that I don't know if it's on the most current version of the Blu-ray set, but um, going back to the DVDs, there was this documentary called The, uh, the Omen Legacy. And there are numerous actors or individuals who are associated with the entire series of films who just roll their eyes at that and say, <laughs> yes, it's bullshit. It's total bullshit. It wow. was... Harvey Bernhard, the producer who is, you know, telling all these stories to the press. And that raises the question again, whether it's The Exorcist or it's The Omen, um, does ultimate evil choose to reveal itself in so blatant a way around the making of a feature film? Does that, is that actually in sort of what we would expect the, the behavior of Satan you know, is that in the realm of what we would expect from Satan to be that gaudy? Well, or yeah. is that out of character? It also raises a larger question, and this it becomes even more of a problem in the third film. Um, let's say this guy is the Antichrist. What is he going to do? I mean, the whole idea of uh, the, the stuff in the book of Revelation, that referred to Rome. Uh, Emperor Nero or whoever replaced him as the persecutor of the Jews, that was the Antichrist that, they, that the book of Revelation was warning against. Uh, the book of Revelation was not written to predict what's going to happen in 1976. What mm -hmm. possible reason would anybody in Jesus's time or shortly after Jesus' death sit down and go, I got to let people know 2,000 years from now what's going, what might happen? That doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody be bothered with that? It's about what was happening at the time. And so the idea that an antichrist will come in the modern world and establish some sort of empire of evil, well, what, what would that look like? And how would we distinguish it from the way things are right now? I mean, is Damien actually going to be a greater threat than the people that we have running the country now? I can't imagine how he could. I would actually think he might do a better job. The devil <laughs> might have at least enough sense to realize that he's got to take care of the basic maintenance of the country, right? That you can't be evil all the time. There's a problem with the Bond villains too, right? The Bond villains prove what tough guys they are by killing their subordinates. So you're not mm -hmm. going to have many subordinates if you keep doing that, right? <laughs> people going yourself, down, yeah. right? You're sending people into the piranha <laughs> trap and, you know, I mean, the, the, the idea of the Antichrist is an absurd idea because an, a religion or a movement based on evil is an absurd idea. Uh, the satanic uh, church that we have now is a group of atheists that are trying to show people the absurdity of uh, the way we regard religion in our society. It's not actual people that think that we should be sacrificing babies or anything like that. And, and actually a lot of the image of uh, the, of the Satan, the classic image of Satan, are really just uh, Greek uh, Roman uh, gods, right? Pan is the figure that we have, that we, what we would consider the devil now, the horns and the, ho uh, the cloven hoofs. Uh, and, 
you know, it also has been something that uh, anti-Semites have made some use of. The image of the devil for a, a long time in our history has been very Semitic in appearance. Uh, so these concepts really were more about what sort of fantasy or mythology can I come up with that will allow me to hold on to power and to punish my enemies. The devil is a great way to do that. Right? I just ask all those women hanging from ropes at Salem, right? They ended up being accused of witchcraft, not mm. because anybody really thought they were witches, but because they wanted to get their property. Right? Yeah. They're, they weren't dying fast enough. And their relatives are saying, you know, oh, maybe we should help her along. You know, looking back at all that, and it, that's so funny you brought that up, is just thinking about, and even with these movies, the time they came out, I think people still had that, you know, I, I guess it's not really as, I guess people don't, it, it doesn't scare them as much as it did back in the day. I, I agree. With you know you. what I mean? Like it, the 70s, there was still a lot of religious stuff going on and people were still, oh my God, you know, this girl got possessed by a demon. And then you have uh, the omen, oh my God, you know, the, the Antichrist could be walking around among us. And then, you know, nowadays we got so much social media and, and we can see what's going on wherever in the world. Yeah. No, and I, agree I guess you. people, you know, kind of like, okay, well, and then you can look up what was the first religion? What was the first established religion? Well, it's Hinduism. So it's like, well, are they right or am I right? You know, well, you know, everybody was raised a certain way or had a religion to base their, you know, you know, mom and dad believed this, their parents believed, you know, and all that stuff. And then when you get older, you start having your own perception. Right. And I guess, you know, those movies back in the day, that's why they worked. Well, I also everybody think, still was scared of stuff like that and I, not, not as much anymore. Or am I wrong? It was the first time in Hollywood history that anybody was making a movie like that, right? Where they were saying that the end times may be coming and the antichrist may be coming. And so it had a certain novelty. Uh, but I also think that uh, with the exorcist and with the omen, you're seeing a sort of counter revolution, uh, in the years from the mid sixties to the mid seventies, you saw the new Hollywood, with morally ambiguous films like Bonnie and Clyde and Parallax View <laughs> and films that were not crowd pleasers. And they were, there were two components. There was the new style of production, which was to take the cameras out and shoot in real places and sometimes use real people as Friedkin did in The Exorcist with the priests. Uh, and the other aspect of it was that moral ambiguity, not having happy endings, having anti-heroes, uh, not trying to create a uh, sort of like a satisfying, emotionally satisfying experience for the audience, but to challenge the audience and to give them some, a bitter pill to swallow. Well, that went on for a while and there were some great films made in that period. It's probably the best film, uh, history, period in the history of film. And then the studios began to have successes like Jaws and The Exorcist and The Omen and um, Star Wars and Rocky. We often forget Rocky. Rocky came out the same year as The Omen. And they said, hey, wait a minute we can take the production aspect, the new way of doing production, shooting in real places and trying to get that sort of gritty realism that the new Hollywood films have, but we can tell old fashioned stories and they'll be much more effective now because we're using, they, ha they have greater verisimilitude, they feel more real, right? So 
that this is Hollywood's way of clawing back the market, right? They didn't, the studios were uncomfortable with the idea that they had these crazy hippies making these movies that some of them were big hits, but some of them were not particularly successful. You have films like Easy Rider. Can you imagine what people like Gregory Peck must have thought of Easy Rider? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so now, and, and Peter Blatty, really, he deserves the credit for this because he's the guy that said, if I'm going to do The Exorcist, I got to get a guy like Freakin. Freakin was one of those new Hollywood guys, right? He was the one that was always talking about the European filmmakers and his influences clearly made him the best person to take this old-fashioned story about devil possession, demonic possession, and make it as intense and unbelievable as possible. And this movie is really just following up on that. This is also a film that largely shoots in real locations, probably more than they needed to, and has a, a feeling of reality to it that makes it work. The remake is, of course, done in the modern era. Everything is CGI'd. I mean, there's some scenes there where they looks like they're doing green screen work with just two actors talking to each other. I don't know if you guys have seen the remake. Yeah, it's, it's been, been a long time. They had a scene later in the film when, uh, in the original film, it's David Warner and Gregory Peck, and in the remake, it's Lee Schreiber and the fellow, I forget his name, who plays the photographer, and they're sitting in an Italian outdoor cafe and I swear to Christ, some of those shots of the two of them talking looks like it was done in front of a green screen, right? Well, well it's possible it was. I mean, if you look at that movie in general, the sheer amount of green screen is, um, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly embarrassing when they try very unsuccessfully to recreate moments that were very iconic in the original film. Obviously, the Jennings character being decapitated, um, that incredible bit of trick photography that Donner did where um, Lee Remick falls from the balcony and lands on her stomach on the floor. Uh, once you know how that effect was done, and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody here, because once you know how that effect was done, it's all you can see when you watch the yeah. film subsequently. <laughs> but it's brilliant. It's yeah. brilliant. It because it's one of those impossible looking shots that was all trick photography. And Amazing. Also, it's outstanding. They ruin the rest of that scene by giving us the impression that Damien was doing it intentionally, which is not the case in the original. In the original, he's doing his little tricycle wheelie wheels and the nurse opens the door and lets him go out into the hall and we don't have any way of knowing if he's doing what he's doing intentionally. It could be an Right. Action. Well, and then in the, I mean, that's the least of the sins committed um, by well, that remake. True. You know, the, the remake also, you know, it, rather than saying, hey, let's do some, you know, trick photography and pull off something that's otherwise impossible. It's Julia Stiles lying on a green screen and, you know, the effect <laughs> is comped in behind her. It's, it's just as egregious as the, uh, the, the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, doing well, the, the character being <laughs> thrown across the ceiling. I mean, yeah. it's, it's terrible. It's, it's, it's absolutely awful. This also brings up one of the little logic problems with the first film. If the nurse didn't want to have her hands on this murder, and she lets the kid do it so it looked like an accident, right? And Lee Remick is laying, presumably, near death on the floor. Why do they call the ambulance? Why don't they let her die? Well, because I didn't take it that they were trying to kill her. They were trying to kill the baby. 
Okay. Well, that that raises another question. (laughs) (laughs) If they, if their main purpose was trying to kill the baby, then when, why would they send Belloc in again to kill her in the hospital when it's very likely that she would be discovered? And especially when she kills her in such a spectacular fashion, she pushes her out the window. Because because Thorne and Jennings escalated. They they start doing their globe trotting adventure and but they're she, getting nearer and nearer lost to the, the baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She got that point. Because why, why would you risk? Because the trail is leading them to Bugenhagen, who has the daggers, at which point there needs to be some sort of an alibi or rationale for why Thorne's behavior is what it is. The guy's lost his mind. His wife is dead, you know, after you know, first right, he loses yeah. his his unborn child, and then his wife dies in this freak accident, which by the way is really fucking mean. It's really mean. It's oh, mean. Yes. She doesn't just get dropped out of a building. She doesn't just get dropped out of a building onto the top of an ambulance so <laughs> she can blow out the windows. She oh. does it while she's stuck trying to change her hospital gown. Yeah, no. It's just <laughs> embarrassing and mean and awful, and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it, almost came up, it almost came up as comical. I'm, I'm just like this should be like in a Naked Gun movie. Well, like like William was saying, a lot of this stuff comes off as comical now. When you go back and you watch it, it seemed shocking at the time, and I know yeah, I mean, the audience I saw it with just gasped when they're like, "Oh my god!" Well, I mean, come on, you know, the we were <laughs> saying a little while ago that you know, for the most part, horror was a it was it was junk food cinema. It still is, but right. you know, it was really considered junk food cinema in that time. And The Omen is just, you know, it's a Hammer movie with higher production values. Well, it's interesting you say that because particularly when they got to the cemetery scene, I thought, even when I saw the film originally when I was 14 years old, I thought, Hammer could do something like this. And I can't understand why that was just the time when Hammer was going out of business and everybody was saying, well, they can't compete with films like The Exorcist and The Omen. They could have made a film like The Omen. Oh, yeah. Sure. The reason why they went out of business, and maybe I should save this for your future Hammer episode. <laughs> the reason why they went out of business, besides the internal changes with new people coming in, was because they never did a second draft of any of the scripts. They didn't treat their projects like blockbusters, like Hollywood was treating them. They didn't do stuff like uh, the, the amount of effort that William Friedkin put into The Exorcist or the amount of effort that Spielberg put into Jaws or the amount of effort that they put into The Omen. Their attitude was, we got a 20-day schedule, we got a million dollars, get it done, and we can start working on the next one. And we'll put them both out on a double bill at the same time. It was very Roger Corman. I mean, right, you know, (laughs) a lot of those productions, like when Christopher Lee very famously shot Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and Rasputin back-to-back, same cast, same sets, same costumes, completely (laughs) different characters. And they put them out on a double bill. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Everybody could tell, oh, that's the, we recognize that. That's the set from the other movie. But that, that is what, in my opinion, that's what killed them. They could have said, we're not going to do that anymore. And rather than doing, they had one movie, one, one year where they had two Dracula movies in one year. That's not making movies. That's making TV shows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should say we're going to do one quality movie, and we're going to get the best writers. They had access to people like Richard Matheson, who did one of their best films. Let's get the best. instead of getting, allowing the producer or the guy who runs the studio to write the scripts. I say none of that crap. Get decent writers and write good stuff. Hire somebody like David Seltzer. I mean, the thing that David Seltzer had done before The Omen was 
being sort of like a ghostwriter on Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and writing the Hellstrom Chronicle, which was a bogus, sort of like an artificial documentary about insects taking over the world, but actually won the Oscar, for best documentary, or nominated at least. Uh, so he had a history of sort of taking uh, factual information, like stuff from the Book of Revelation, and playing with it and turning it into something that would scare or upset people. Uh, one mystery that comes to my mind is why he was never able to do it again. His next film after the Omen was Prophecy, which was a stinkeroo. You know, I mean, that was just <laughs> a, a terrible movie. And I think probably, if I can guess, the first movie was an example of him being crassly commercial and doing something for the money. And the, the Prophecy came along and said, now I'm going to do that. My, my dream project is going to be socially conscious. and I'm going to bring up uh, all these social issues like pollution and all this and of course, it was horrible. Nobody. Well, he also it. had, you know, Richard Donner. He had Richard Donner with the Omen. And yeah, but he had John Frankenheimer with Prophecy. <laughs> yeah, but you know, that's that's latter that's latter career John Frankenheimer. Yes. Not even not even latter career at this point. But but nonetheless, he was no longer at the top of his powers. Whereas Donner was kind of on his way up. You know, it was this, and then it was Superman, and. Yeah. Um, yeah, but if we're talking about, you know, we keep talking about era and we keep talking about the years in which this was released and, you know, looking at it from that sort of historical context, has anybody else taken a look at at least the first three? The three that were released by 20th Century Fox theatrically and tried to figure out exactly what year any of them are taking place? Because oh, I assume the third, the third one has to be taking place in a, some sort of future. Right? Okay, but in each case, you've got, all right, so you've got The Omen in 1976, and Damien is five. And then you've got Damien Omen 2 in 1978, two years later, at which time Damien is 12 turning 13. So that means that either we are now in the year, what? eight years after that. So we're now like in 1984, right. or we're saying that Damien Omen 2 took place in 1978 and that the original Omen took place eight years before that. So 1970. But then we get to Omen 3 and Damien is 33 and that's 1981. So are we doing the math backwards? <laughs> or is Omen 3 in the future from 1981 and we're seeing like an alternate millennium? You know, yeah. when, yeah, when, no, what I year are we that, in? I think that they definitely wanted us to uh, assume that Omen 3 was taking place in some near future. Uh, and I think even the discussions of the Israelis bombing some dam and all the sort of topical things are all about fictional stuff that we assume are, is meant to be futuristic. I mean, in the first film, they have somebody, um, Thorne's assistant, say something about inflation. So clearly that was meant to be said in 1976 because inflation was on everybody's mind at that time. Uh, the second one, I guess, has to be a little bit into the future because you're right, the kid is far too old. Uh, he's obviously not just two years older than a five-year-old. Uh, so that is a little bit into the future. And then I guess the third one has to be intentionally set in a, in a, a fairly distant, not a, not a distant future, but certainly well off in the, in the future. So that all those little um, political things and 
the uh, uh, stuff that's happening on the world stage with Israel and whatnot, it can be sort of made up and not refer to anything that was actually happening at the time. But if that's the case, then Omen 3 is taking place in an alternate 2004 in which power mullets, wide lapels, <laughs> um, corduroy jackets, these are all sort of the norm. Yes, right. they've all made a comeback in 2004. <laughs> that's a, that's a scary alternate reality did you well, see this pretty much like that now a lot of stuff from the 80s is coming back that's true in 2020 right yeah. so maybe the antichrist is returning <laughs> it's a sign of it but did you see the fourth one of course that was the fourth one the one where uh damien's a girl or yes that's, that's right yes. okay okay and i haven't seen that one in forever that one was supposedly 19 made in 1991 right that was 1991 from that was the... it was it made for tv Okay, so it, it it was, up on TV. so, so yes, it was made for early Fox in 1991, and the whole idea was that Fox, you know, it's 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 the same thing we were talking about when we were talking about Sleepaway Camp a couple weeks ago. We were saying that there came that point where during the VHS boom of the mid to late 80s, a lot of these smaller companies, people like Roger Corman, were going and saying which movies only had a part one that we can scoop up the rights to put a two at the end of that title and release it direct to video in on vhs in stores like and so leprechaun you saw slow, too. what's that say it again leprechaun too leprechaun too <laughs> but you got you got your sleepaway camp too you got your slumber party massacre too and that's kind of the same model with the omen four since fox owned the rights to this they premiered what was essentially supposed to be a pilot episode of what was going to be an ongoing series. And the two-hour pilot was called Open for the Awakening and was essentially a soft reboot, what we now call a soft reboot, um, that more or less remade the original Omen, but updated it for modern times on, you know, maybe a tenth of the budget adjusted for inflation. It, well, it, certainly, it certainly looked like a TV movie, and the, uh, I mean, there's so much bad stuff in that that it, you, you could do a whole show about it. Uh, <laughs> even sort of silly, cheap mistakes that they make, like at the very end, they have a funeral, and it's bone dry. There isn't a, a raindrop in sight, but they want to have the guy holding an umbrella. Right? They walk off because they, they're so attached to the idea of Funerals in the rain are supposed to be atmospheric, but the it's a bright, sunny day. Everybody else that doesn't have an umbrella, he has an umbrella, and he walks off into the distance at the end, of the <laughs> holding an umbrella. And it's mm -hmm. like, where was the money to bring in a couple of trucks to have some rain or to fake it in post? But the other thing about that movie is it didn't really feel like it was 1991. It felt more like 1980s. Uh, it, it did. Now, are you familiar? Uh, I, I don't know how deep you go down the rabbit hole on the Halloween films. Not too um, well, <laughs> Halloween five is the second film in a row that was directed by a, a French. I'm, I'm assuming he's French based on his name. Uh, Dominique. Otien Girard, I believe is how you pronounce his name. But he also directed Halloween 5, oh. which is the second worst of the Halloween films. And in the case of both 
Halloween 5 and Omen 4, he was fired and replaced or either replaced a fired director. I'm not sure. That's, that's, well, that's, if he was um, fired, it's certainly understandable. Uh, I'm not sure about all that <laughs> trivia. Hopefully somebody that's listening to this can tweet at us or Facebook at us. Yes. <laughs> well, one thing I would say about uh, the fourth one, it has a very hilarious scene in it when they go and visit the crystal spiritual people, the fair. Oh my God, the psychic fair is amazing. <laughs> that is hilarious. I mean, why does uh, the little girl need any sort of supernatural power when apparently everybody will kill themselves? They'll set themselves on fire. You know, okay, like you know, all right, that, 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 that actually raises a really good question. Um, and that is, all right, we already, we already kind of talked about the timeline of the Omen films. <laughs> so if we're talking about Omen 4 as being Omen 4 and taking place in the same universe as the first three, in fact, it's even referenced at the very end right. that Delia, the little girl, is Damien's daughter by some machinations. Right. He is uh, he sired her before he died. So at any rate, all right, now we are in the future an indeterminate amount of time after Omen 3, so it's post-2004. And we are living in this weird pocket universe where children who are all clearly 10 to 12 years old are in preschool. Mm. I could not determine how old this child and her friends were supposed to be. <laughs> because right, huh? they are very clearly not in elementary school during yeah. the school scenes. And I, I, I don't know how old they're supposed to be, but you know, there's like kids wetting themselves and getting scared of climbing a ladder. Right. Um, but but it's, it's, it's all very, very weird. And I know that's common practice to use older children or in some cases using adults rather than teenagers, you know, for labor laws and all of that. But it's really strange the well, way right. that children are presented in this that's film. That's a flaw I hadn't even thought about, but... Uh... I mean, I, I thought of that, that psychic fair thing for a clever director, that would have been a great opportunity. Uh, he could have had the little girl come and make great friends with all these people. They have no idea that there's anything wrong with it, right? Except maybe for one. There's some old lady in the background, a gypsy or something. Look out the beast. That would make sense. That would be dramatic. That would be dramatic in the same way that some of the scenes in your first film would be dramatic. You don't have everybody who lays eyes on them start to pee their pants because they're all oh, the devil child is here. Are we supposed to believe that everybody who attends a psychic fair has the ability to see the Antichrist when, when, when they pass among them? Well, so it also raises the really interesting question <laughs> of how are we supposed to regard the psychic characters in Omen 4? Are we supposed to view them the same way that we view heroic priests in the earlier Omens or the Exorcist? And we're like, yeah, they're the, you know, they're God's cops. Well, or I are think, we supposed to be looking at the psychic people and are we supposed to be laughing at them? I view them as avatars for the writer or the director. They clearly ha wanted to, they have some sort of thing in their minds about the importance of working in references to healing crystals and all this horseshit. So they thought, oh, this will be new. This will be a clever idea. And of course, it's not a clever idea because people that believe in healing crystals, they don't go by the Old Testament or the New Testament? I mean, spirituality, modern spirituality and that sort of stuff 
that doesn't have any basis in the book of Revelation or anything like that. Those people wouldn't be expert in finding the beast, right? Uh, it's, a, it, it's just a mishmash, but apparently somebody involved with the production felt strongly about, you know, uh, crystal healing and, and all that sort of jazz, and they worked it in. But it's a ridiculous scene. I mean, it really is hilarious. To, they have one guy there, I guess he's supposed to be blind, and he's just like, I-Y, like, I don't know if he's, maybe they left out, they left out in the, maybe there was some reference in the script that he actually is blind. Uh, then they have the juggler setting fire to everything. I mean, just absurd stuff. And the little, and the, and the funny thing is, the, the 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 nanny is just sort of quietly taking the child away as the whole fucking fair burns down and people are on it. I mean, that seems like a strange reaction. I've got to I've got to find it because I I remember seeing it like when it came on TV, whatever year that was, but I haven't seen it since. So I got to try to find a copy of it now. It is so handcuffed by the limitations of 1991 um, television that it it it's it's trying so desperately to shock and horrify through the repeated and progressively more desperate use of the image of the inverted cross, Mm. and it's it's the, the film is trying to find interesting and symbolic ways to show you an upside down cross and it just becomes hysterical. It turns into a drinking game. Um, well, I thought that, that scene where Michael Lerner is running through the streets and the, uh, I guess the Christmas Carol is. That yes. They, they pop up in front of him. They're all like zombies and uh, blah, 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 blah. And, and the one's got the inverted cross and it's yes, just like. Naturally, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. God. He's gonna he's gonna try to help uh, Linda Blair out, I guess. With her, yes, her, exactly. But uh, that sort of silliness is just you know, it's hard to imagine sometimes when you see these films that anybody was looking at the dailies, because you would think somebody would somebody in charge would say, hey, you know, take away their credit card or their checkbook. We're not gonna spend any more money on this piece of shit. But they go ahead and they make them and they finish them and they put them out. And I guess in Australia, this was actually released as a feature film. Sorry, Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go back. To, I want to go back to a couple things real quick. The uh, Lee Remick falling falling off the balcony. Is it done the same way that they did the uh, investigator in Psycho falling being falling down the steps? Mm. No. Okay. Okay. No. Okay. All right. <laughs> do, do you want me to tell you? Sure. Yeah. It's not going to work for me. I all right. Know. Spoil like alert. <laughs> if you are listening to this right now and you do not want for this scene to be forever spoiled, skip forward 30 seconds. And, yeah, all right. <laughs> fuck it. It's me talking. Skip forward 90 seconds. This is what they did. They put Lee Remick. She was standing up on a dolly. And they had behind her, the wall was done as the floor. Mm-hmm. And everything that's on the floor, like the rug and, and, and you know, the fishbowl that fell over, it's all attached to the wall. So that she's standing in front of the camera on this dolly. The dolly pulls her body back. She's doing the turn as if she's falling and landing on her stomach, but she's standing up the entire time. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. 
it's really cool. It's one of those, it's one of those, you know, you, you start rubbing your hands together going, ooh, ooh I want to make, in my <laughs> next movie, I want to do this sort of thing. Well, sometimes well, those simple effects are the most effective. Yeah, Actually, oh, yeah. They, they did Hitchcock one better because I always thought that that process shot in, um, in Psycho with the guy teetering down the stairs backwards, I always thought that was pretty obviously a process shot or a rear screen shot. Um, and it diminishes uh, that scene a little bit. Earlier in his career, he was inclined to do all sorts of elaborate stuff to get an effect. I don't know if you've ever heard that story about how uh, he built a giant uh, brandy snifter. There was a, apparently back in the day, they didn't have camera or lenses that could get sharp focus of something in the distance and sharp focus of something near the camera. And they used to do later, they, they came up with a split, uh, a split diopter lens which basically is two lenses that are cut together so that the stuff in the distance is sharp and the stuff in the foreground is sharp. And you see that being used even like in Robert Wise movies like Star Trek The Motion Picture and uh, The Andromeda Strain. So uh, it's, that's, that was one way they handled that. Hitchcock, he, couldn't, he didn't have split diopter lenses. So he, uh, there's a scene with somebody sitting at a table and there's a person across from him. Person in the foreground has a brandy snifter. He wants that to be big in the front of the picture. So he built a giant brandy snifter <laughs> and put that in front of the camera. So that's sharp and the person in the distance is sharp. Uh, so he did have, in, in the past, he was pretty inventive and creative. But maybe by the time he did Psycho, he was looking to get things done as quickly as possible. Psycho was shot with his TV production unit. So they probably were just sort of looking for the quickest way to do things. I also right. think that that scene of him either going up or going down the stairs was shot on a day when Hitchcock was sick. He allowed the, his assistant director to do it. When he came back, he said, oh no, it's no good. We have to do it again. So maybe that's why they relied on that pretty obvious process shot when he's falling backwards down the stairs. But I don't know if I'm overly critical. Did you, did you feel that that was uh, obviously a, 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 a background uh, rear projection? when he falls backwards, uh, I guess the actor is who? Uh, See, I was thinking it was more, I thought it was, um, he, had a, he had a thing where he would move the camera and zoom yes. in at the same time, the moving the camera back and zooming in. I, I thought that's how they done that. Yeah. The vertigo thing. And yeah. I think, it, yeah, he did use that. I don't know if he used it in Psycho, but he obviously used it in Vertigo. Uh, I think he might've been the first to use that uh, in Vertigo. But in that shot, it looks like they have who the hell's the actor? He was around for years. Uh, he's a big actor. Was mm. the, the guy that's playing uh, detective, the private Barbara detective. Gast. Yeah. Barbara Gast. Gast. Yeah. Um, he's a very famous actor. He was around for, you know. Uh, anyway, it looks like they put him in a chair or something and slid him backwards towards a screen or maybe it was even a mat job. I don't know. Maybe it was the background was superimposed. But I don't think that's him going down the stairs backwards. That looks like some sort of process shot. First of all, it was Martin Balsam. Martin Balsam, that's right, yes. And my, I was always under the impression, and I could totally be wrong, but I was always under the impression that he was on a dolly going down the stairs. Well, that's possible. Yeah. And that the camera was fixed to the same dolly that he was attached to. Well, that might be it. Yeah, that and might be it. you might be right, um, but that was my understanding, was that well, that was how it was done. If they did that, if they put him on a dolly and the camera is attached to the same thing, then you probably would get an effect that would be similar to a rear projection shot because the camera would be moving the same way that the actor is moving, which is usually the problem with 
uh, rear projection shots is the background is not moving in the same way that the person is. Right, yeah. Uh, so maybe that's why I thought it was a rear projection. But anyway, it looks, looks a little phony, you know. And I love Psycho. I think that's a wonderful film, but that, that, that always sort of stuck out as being. So I, I, my credit, my hats off to Richard Donner for coming yeah. up with a more effective way of doing it because right. I didn't realize that that was a fake floor. I guess that also explains why the goldfish bowl goes down first, right? Because we yeah. can't have the goldfish bowl crashing at the same time. She's exactly. Yeah. yeah, another interesting thing, the, uh, the goldfish were actually uh, sardines painted gold mm -hmm. because he didn't want to, uh, he didn't feel like he should kill goldfish. Well, good for him. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Why should you kill anything for a... For right, a, yeah. It's, uh, but uh, the, I don't know how, I assume the dogs were well-treated uh but uh yeah they they said they had problems with them they would kind of flip out a little bit they were kind of hard to control i think during the uh, the cemetery scene the uh the stuntman for uh gregory he put on extra stuff because he saw the jaws of those things he's like crap he even had like a little thin thing of i, I guess a thin sheet of metal or something uh, he said when those dogs bit down it bit right through that too jesus yeah, yeah well. so they they kind of have problems with maybe that m might explain why they didn't use it in the remake because they're <laughs> yeah. you know well, what i mean so i noticed in the remake when they did the cemetery scene they used that uh, saving private ryan effect on the action uh well they were using every type of effect it was like we have this thing that doesn't look very good, so let's use every conceivable type of effect to make it look more like a movie. But I thought that really hurt that scene because the reason why it works so well in the first film is you really get the feeling that the actors and the dogs are there and interacting with each other. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, only, the only thing I liked about the remakes, um, and, and believe me, I can offer that film only very, very faint praise and only in a few instances. But I will say that one thing I did enjoy was the way that that scene in the cemetery um, was set in snow. That was one thing that I enjoyed about it. Right. it. It very much changed the atmosphere. Didn't necessarily make it better, but if you're going to do a remake of a classic film um, that is hewing so closely to the original film that the original screenwriter receives sole on-screen credit, as mentioned earlier. Um, you, you've got to find opportunities to do something a little bit different. And I did enjoy that something as simple as um, changing what the basic location looked like and going from one stark example to another was something that I found, you know, regained my interest, albeit very, very fleetingly. I also did very much enjoy the fact that there was an attempt to um, kill the Jennings character in a way that was also decapitation, but was not a shot-for-shot -shot recreation of the original film. Right, did something yeah. a little bit different. Those, that's pretty much the only thing I can give that film. And in any instance of atmosphere that is intentionally trying to evoke the same feeling as the original, but in a different visual way, I, I, I have to at least appreciate that aspect. Of course, the snow, other than the snow that's on the ground, the falling snow, is another digital effect. 
So it's like another instance where they said, gee, what can we do to make this more visually interesting? Right, sure. Theater, right? But it's interesting, the, uh, David Selsa, this is sort of uh, uh, going back to the first film, David Selsa credited Richard Donner for helping him to avoid a mistake that might have ruined the film, which is uh, he told him to change his uh, script to take out the uh, cloven-hoofed demon creatures that he was going to have in that cemetery scene and put in the dogs instead. And Donna's main message, his main uh, uh, concept was that none of, nothing overtly supernatural should happen. Everything should be explainable in some way. And why that sure does make a difference because when you consider they were shooting on a very obvious set rather than shooting on location for that scene, if they had dragged out a bunch of people in robes with cloven hoofs, you know, and that, that would have destroyed the movie, right? That's like if, if they had had a real witch show up at the end of the Blair Witch Project, it just would have been. Right, yeah. It has to be left to the imagination. And in this case, you could say, well, those dogs aren't possessed. They're just a bunch of stray dogs that hang around in the cemetery, right? There's no reason why they shouldn't attack. Why, what, what, do, what do stray dogs do? especially Rottweilers. So right. it makes sense a reasonable person could come up with an explanation for that. Now, I don't know what sort of injury they were suggesting that Gregory Peck did with his arm. I, I find it hard to believe that they're suggesting that he actually impaled his arm on that uh, spike. It looked like it went all the way through. It did look that way, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's kind of hard to believe. I also have problems with the cemetery scene because they show up at the cemetery looking for a particular grave, which was apparently dug five years ago and in a minute they found it yeah <laughs> and the the grave has the name of a woman on it right mm -hmm. and there's a body of a jackal inside a de decomposed a skeleton of a jackal why would they go through this trouble why would they leave a trail of evidence right, yeah. and, and the, the, the uh, grave opens up as easy as a piece of Tupperware, right? <laughs> and inside, there's no coffin or receptacle of any kind. There's just the skeleton of the jackal, so it can all be done in one quick shot. And then, to make matters worse, he pops open the, the, the grave of the baby, and there's the baby, also not in any sort of box, but a big hole in its head, as if they said, let's make sure if somebody opens this grave, they can easily see that we killed it with a rock or something, right? Let's make sure that that's the thing on top. <laughs> I mean, are they asking for Thorn or somebody to come along and piece together what happened? It certainly seems that way. Uh, the problem is all these things, if you took out all these illogical things, you wouldn't have a movie, right? Right, yeah. It's also a movie that depends on sort of the way um, like old uh, screwball comedies and, and farces depend on the characters never being able to get together in a room and say, what they mean or give the, the other character the information that they need to understand what's going on. Everybody is always talking across purposes. He have a situation where this father, what's his name, Brennan? He shows up and rather than saying to himself, now I'm gonna be careful when I go in to talk to this guy because I don't want him to think I'm crazy because I really want him to believe me. And it doesn't matter if he believes the kid is the antichrist. The only thing I have to do at first is to convince them that the people who gave him this child think he's the Antichrist. Right, that would yeah. be a good first step to getting him over to realizing what's going on, right? Instead, what does he do? Well, first they pick 
a Doctor Who actor to play the part. Yeah. <laughs> and then he comes in and he's acting as crazy. I mean, it's like he has lunatic written on his forehead. Bulging eyes. You got to drink mm -hmm. the body of Christ. You got to eat the body of Christ. And of course, uh, Gregory Peck says, get, get out, you know. And the other absurdity is Gregory Peck is willing to meet with him another time, right? So he, they're out in the open. The devil waits until the priest tells him everything he needs to know to investigate the case. Then he kills him. Why would they do that? If they're going to kill him at all, why would they wait until after he disgorges all the information that he has, right? He gives all the clues about where to go and who to see and all that, and then they kill him. Once you start going down the rabbit hole of why did God or the devil do or not do this in this film, <laughs> um, yeah, you can't, you can't have any film at all. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if anybody behaved like a rational person, whether they're on the side of the devil or on the side of the folks that are trying to stop them, uh, the whole movie would be 10 minutes long, right? Not to mention the fact, and this is something that even Gregory Peck complained about, uh, the idea that a man in Thorne's position with his responsibility would ex accept some strange priest's offer to substitute mm -hmm. his dead baby for a, a woman's baby. He doesn't know who the woman is. He doesn't know what's wrong with the kid. He hasn't asked to see the, the uh, he does ask to see, but he, he's willing to accept it when the priest says, you don't need to see the dead baby. What would be the point? So what would be the point is, I want to make sure that, you know, the kid is dead. Yeah. Wouldn't that be the first thing that would occur to any parent if some strange person came to you and said, your child died? So yeah, but that's because I've seen the omen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're all on God now. Yes. Yeah. And we're all, all checking, right. checking our children's hair to make yeah. sure they're going to strike all you right. that every time they did that scene in all the sequels, it got easier and easier to find that birthmark. I mean, yeah. Gregory Peck has to be snipping for a half hour before he finds <laughs> it. Tops of ones, it's like, you know, <laughs> touch the kid and you see that <laughs> all right mr poe what you what's your final thoughts on the omen oh man I'm, i mean it's a great movie i i liked it for what it is i mean i i've watched it man it's been a while since i watched it i watched it again like i told you over the phone i i bought it on voodoo it's on sale and i mean you know yeah they meant it as a thriller and i can kind of see that but then when I went to buy it, it's in the horror section. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, movies from that period, you had great actors. And then as, uh, Eric pointed out, you know, the, the little, uh, special effects they did, you know, they, they kind of rigged some stuff up and there's other stories. Uh, I really recommend people watch this and even get behind the scenes of things, you know, and see how they did all the, you know, special effects, especially the one where the glass cuts, you know, the dude's head off. I mean, that sheet of glass, that effect was pretty cool in how they come up with it because there was something totally different they wanted to do. But, um, yeah, I always encourage people to watch classics, and this, this is a classic. So yeah. that's what I thought of it, you know. <laughs> it was definitely a classic. Um, of course, it came out the year I was born. <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> uh, uh, I think uh, – I think it was really good that they had Gregory Peck in it. I think he really brought more to it, if, if, mm -hmm. and other than if they would have like an unknown or you know anybody else in it. Um, and I love the kind of the slow pace. One of the one of the better scenes that I, that for some reason would be odd in movies today is whenever they're going to talk to the priest, 
and they decide to stop and get coffee on the way and it's like that wouldn't you wouldn't have that in movies today but i think that really gave it you know because like nowadays it would just be dialogue in the car you know where the you know, the guys are going to stop on the road and get some coffee i thought that was a great scene i thought that brought a lot to it but the rest of the movie to me when i watch it it's nothing but dread and like cold and i, I enjoy i enjoy watching it i thought it was really good uh two's good not a big fan of three and then i i needed trying to try to find four so i can watch it. yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> i gotta see this eric final thoughts i love the omen um <laughs> it's wonderful camp it's camp it's it it's camp. it's it's wanting to be the exorcist it's not the exorcist um that doesn't make it bad by any stretch of the imagination it's just that you know, the the Exorcist is a really exquisitely seasoned and prepared filet. And the Omen's a really fucking great cheeseburger. And so they're they're different things and they they both have wonderful qualities. But I love the omen and I love omen two. Omen three is a little dodgy. Omen four is fucking fantastic <laughs> if you have not seen it, see it with someone you love or preferably someone you don't love um and subject them to omen for the awakening and skip the remake just skip. i have to make billy watch it since he couldn't be on this show now is part three is that the one where jesus shows up at the end oh yeah. yes okay yeah. <laughs> one where jesus shows up wasn't that wow. awful <laughs> if you've ever wanted to see jesus show up looking for some back padding <laughs> right after he did exactly nothing to resolve the crisis. Um, then this is the movie for you. Uh, yeah, that should definitely be a rule. Never show Jesus. Uh, no. yeah. Jesus, Jesus should not be in your movie, right? Because he's no, no, always going to be happy with your presentation. I do have a, I do have a question and I don't want to, I don't want to preempt your final thought here, but did anybody else have, speaking of Jesus and speaking of Omen 3, did anyone else wonder what the symbolism was, if any, in having all of Damien's Hamlet style soliloquies and monologues that he's delivering in the black box theater chapel in his you know ruined estate or whatever he's always having these these monologues in which he is talking in the presence of a crucified jesus however the crucified jesus statue is unlike one i've ever seen depicted well i think i can i think i can bring some insight into that i think that's a mike hodges touch um jesus is showing his ass and there's one shot where damien comes up and puts his arms on and is holding his thorns of his head and the implication is he's uh, symbolically sodomizing him. and the reason we can guess this is because later when he gets the lady photographer in bed he turns her over and that's not because he wants to do it doggy style he wants to sodomize her and so this is i guess the way the devil enjoys himself uh symbolically ass fucking jesus and unfortunately for that lady photographer, well, she's not a photographer, she's a reporter. Unfortunately for her, uh, rather humiliatingly, she gets it up the ass from the Antichrist uh, before losing her child in the last scene of the film. But well, it's interesting because I, I think what really supports 
um, your, your theory here is the fact that both the lady reporter, Kate, Kate somebody or other, and um, the Jesus in the Jesus statue have the same mullet. <laughs> so there well, might there be something well, going on there. Also, there's at least one shot that's identical when he's over her shoulders and also when he's over the Jesus statue's shoulders. Uh, but that suggests to me that Mike Hodges had a much edgier script in mind and that he was, maybe that was one of the reasons why they were firing him. He, he took it in a direction they really didn't want to go, but uh, he had something a little more outrageous in mind, which is probably typical of British film directors of his period. You know, he was wanting to do, I mean, he wasn't going quite to the extreme of a Ken Russell, uh, but he, he, I think, and I'm guessing here, I don't know, but I think that that was one of his touches. So uh, that might explain that. I mean, there's no, other, there's no other possible explanation for having a <laughs> crucifix with Jesus harassed, <laughs> you know, that's... Now, it's, it's interesting that when, uh, you know, we were talking before about the novelizations and how uh, Gordon McGill wrote a, an Omen 4 and Omen 5 that represent what the movies would have been had the 20th Century Fox continued making them. Um, that Omen 4 opens up with the lady reporter essentially um, dying on the operating table mm. as she gives anal birth yeah. to Damien Thorne Jr. Well, there you go. So there's jackals giving birth, there's people giving anal birth. Uh, apparently the Antichrist has the ability to mess everybody's biology up. <laughs> oh yeah. If you have, butt sex with the antichrist <laughs> you will have a butt baby that is what you are learning from the omen well, series let's let's cross that off our list our bucket list right yeah. <laughs> all right william what's your final thought on the omen uh well i like i say I, when i saw it as a kid i was knocked out by it uh watching it again now for the first time in 30 years i was initially down on it because of all these absurdities in it it did seem to me to play more like a parody of a horror movie now, but that's the passage of time and it's been parodied by so many other films and TV shows. Uh, when I saw the sequels and the remake, I realized just how clever uh, Donner and Seltzer had been. So my hat is off to them. Obviously, you can't argue with success. They created something that is still, they're still trying to make money from it all these years later. So obviously they, they struck a bell uh, with the audiences and it's still an entertaining film even though it's a silly film I still enjoyed watching it and the music is memorable and it's nicely shot and you're right I think Gregory Peck was a perfect choice for he has the gravitas that you want something that Lee Schreiber even though he might be a superior actor he didn't really have uh, so it's and the, the little boy that played um, Damien in the first film is much better than the kid that played it in the remake. Right, yeah. uh, so uh, for all those reasons, I'd say, yeah, it's definitely a horror moment movie that you have to see if you're a fan of horror. So it has an important place in the history of horror movies. Uh, and it's also interesting in terms of what studio films, how studio films were being made right around that time as they were trying to come out of that period when, uh, you know, there was so much uh, insanity in the, in the film industry. Uh, this was their attempt, I think, with films like this to assert some sort of control over things and get the studios back in a position of, of dominance, which has been successful. Now, you know, the auteurs 
I mean, I don't even know who, what auteurs we would be talking about now, but studios dominate everything. It's basically Disney, you know, and uh, the films reflect that. I think the movies that are coming out today, including the Omen remake, are devoid of any interest, in my opinion. They're not, they're not interesting films. They're not effective films. I don't think anybody who saw the Omen remake thought, ooh, what a spellbinding yeah. film. <laughs> You know, it's uh, and that's the thing I would say about The Exorcist, and and it's true to a certain extent of the Omen as well. So you could see the people who made it had their heart in it. You know, they were really trying to make something good, uh, which explains why somebody would be reduced to painting sardines. You know, if you're going to go to that, <laughs> go to that extent, you know, obviously you're really trying, and that's something you don't see anymore. Right. All right. Well, thanks again for both of you guys for coming here and talking with us about these movies. <clears throat> Enjoy talking with you guys. It, it's just great. Your insights that you have bringing to it is just awesome. Um, Eric, where can everybody find your movies and find you on the internet? You can find my feature films Roulette and Butterfly Kisses streaming on Prime, uh, or you can support physical media and you can order Blu-rays of Roulette or Butterfly Kisses from Amazon, Best Buy, Barnes & Noble, any of those retail outlets. You can also uh, read my obnoxious, snarky film criticism at Ain't It Cool News, where I write as Eric Christopher Myers or simply EKM. I've been watching the door behind you just waiting for somebody to come in with a knife. I'm glad it is. <laughs> after, your, after your silent uh, your alarm went off twice. <laughs> Thanks for uh, fucking up my sleep tonight. Yeah. <laughs> In advance, thank you. Uh, William, where can everybody find uh, your movies at? Uh, well, Demon Resurrection is on Amazon. Uh, should be easy to find. DemonResurrection.com, you can find where it's streaming and also find where you can buy the DVD if you're interested. And uh, my first film, Sleepless Nights, I'm currently in the process of re-editing it and adding new special effects. And I hope to have that out in 2021. Uh, and that'll hopefully be available on DVD and streaming. All right, looking forward to it. And again, thanks both of you for coming on here. And I guess uh, we're going to have you back on for some Hammer Horror later. Yeah, in the Very excited. Yes, that, that'll be fun. Uh, Mr. Poe, where can they find you on the internet? Oh, they call me Mr. Poe on Instagram and all the other social medias, uh, Slasher. But I'm also going to give a shout out to a band I made friends with. They got their new CD, Cauterized, self-titled uh, EP. And uh, you can get it through Kingside Records. So check them out, especially if you like some heavy metal. So, uh, but yeah, that's, that, that'll be my thing at the end of this one. <laughs> all right. And you can find me on Twitter at 1313. Of course, I'm on Facebook. I've got all the social medias. I just don't use them all because I don't really know how to use them, most of them. Uh, but you can find <laughs> you can find the show on Facebook and go to find our group. Uh, of course, we have our tea public store and we have mm -hmm. a we have a Patreon page. Mr. Poe, you want to tell them about our one Patreon supporter we have? Yes. Uh, our Patreon supporters is uh, and the only one, like you said, Mad Hatter's Boards. You can find them on Facebook. They have a group. Uh, what they specialize in is uh, very nice uh, made boards for your enamel pins or whatever. And uh, they're pretty big in the pin community. So, yeah, check them out. And, and you I, know. 
I promise when I get my stimulus check, I'm going to send some money along to your Patreon. There you go. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> All so. right. Again, like the, thanks. Thanks for rejoining us. And I can't wait to have you back on. Thanks oh, yeah. so much, Gary. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you all. Thank Take you. Care. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. The unburied dead are coming back to life.